you wanted to talk a little bit about an update on your Wemo situation, I believe. Oh, boy. Uh, home <laughs> automation, which is my favorite topic of all time. It seems that way. I do want to talk about home automation. I, I, have, a f- I have one home auto- fun home automation hack to share. I think you should go first. I should go first. Okay, so I have, uh, you know, I have a couple Amazon Echoes around so that I can do things like ask... Um, Wait, what can I ask? Oh my god, we should not. Uh, what planes are flying nearby? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I want to go to sleep. Is um, I I've found that um, if you have one of these echoes like somewhere where you don't want to be listening all the time, what you can do, you get a uh, one of the Wemo outlets and then you hook oh it up god. to the Alexa <laughs> app. Stop. And you plug uh, the echo into that Wemo switch or into the Wemo outlet. So wow. that way you can say echo turn off uh the echo in the bedroom and then it turns itself off and then you can't turn it back on with with voice at least not from that room but uh that's incredible (laughs) but that way you know if you want to um you know you want to kill switch for your echo devices you can activate it with your voice i actually super like that it's like a built-in like a a cellular apoptosis just like alexa kill yourself exactly (laughs) (laughs) It, it yeah it is kind of um yeah it, it is like that yeah that's really funny that's much funnier than the thing that i have the thing <laughs> i have for you but that way so this is on the the one that's like um oh never mind is the idea that you don't necessarily want it listening in your bedroom or yeah that's exactly it i'm trying to decide whether it's weird to say that there's an echo in my bedroom Right. Well, I keep you know I keep two echoes in my bed. If, if that's weird, that I mean that sounds fine. Because but I like I ask it. You know, so, some days will be like play rain sounds, and then I just listen sure. to rain sounds at night. But then sometimes you're like stop listening, to, stop playing rain sounds, and stop <laughs> working at all. Yeah, just like go go away. Yeah, yeah. That is really genius. I really <laughs> love that. There's like there's like something about like ai is coming and it's gonna like the singularity is gonna take over the world but all we have to do is like plug it into a smart light switch and, and then, then tell it tell to it turn it itself to... off done easy <laughs> yeah yeah i should do that no, with must um... give me your money i can solve your problems there you well i can solve your problems yeah, I'll, be grab, I'll steal chris's ideas and, and pawn them off as my own damn <laughs> so what's what's your wemo update so okay so as you know, my, my house has a very strange electrical setup. You know my living room has no light switches, so you can't control any lights in there, which is why I have this whole crazy Wemo setup in the first place. Um, but my bathroom also has weird lights. So you know how you know how you can have like an outlet, right? Like a like you can plug stuff into it. There's like two plugs. E- yes, yeah, that and is how outlets work. Right, and then sometimes those like it's the same shape in the same box, but it's like a f- switch you can flick on and off, right? Yeah. Okay. Sometimes it's it's one one outlet that you can plug into and one switch oh, in the same yeah. size box, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have that. Except the switch is this little tiny thing, and it's like impossible to even realize that there's a switch there. Guests come over and they're like, "How do I turn the lights on in the bathroom? I have no idea." And then to make matters worse, we put this like shelving system over the toilet but the way it is it's kind of like kind of blocks off this this outlet and so like you kind of have to slide your hand along like in between the wall and the shelving unit okay to to click this thing to turn the lights on and off so i I was gonna say like most of these problems up until now seem like things you could solve by replacing it with a different light switch 
Okay, yes, you could. But the problem is that if we do that, then we have no outlets in the um, bathroom. And my girlfriend needs to either straighten or blow dry her hair or whatever. I need to shave um, and trim my beard. Mm-hmm, I see. Yes. So we need that outlet. The outlet can't go away. But then also we need the switch because obviously we need a way to turn the lights on and off. So my thinking on this was – and then you know, the fact that we need the outlet is the reason that I can't replace that outlet with a Wemo switch entirely because if I do, then that would replace the outlet, which we need. Right. Okay. So far with me, right? I think so. Okay. So I was like, well, I would like to smartify these lights and I, you know, maybe in the process I could make a switch that's a little bit better than the, than the switch that we have. So what I did is I was like, okay, well, I'll get two smart bulbs and then I'll get some kind of switch that can control the bulbs. You know, I could even plug it in because there is a plug there and it's at like hand level. So like I could actually plug it in, but um, I need to find that thing basically. Right. So okay. what I did, I went on Amazon and I was being real cheap. I was like, you know what? I don't even know if this is going to work. I'm going to buy the cheapest smart light bulbs I can find that work with HomeKit. Okay. And so I went and I found two, uh, like I think they're Sylvania bulbs and they were like $15 each. They were really cheap. This doesn't sound promising. Yeah. So, um, I go in and I go and install them and then I actually, I, I, I hooked them up to HomeKit. They have Wi-Fi chips inside them. And the home kit actually, like the setup was really seamless. It was like really easy to do. It worked great. I didn't need a hub. I didn't need anything like that. And I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Like I have all this stuff set up. And then I tried to like, I was like, okay, well, now I need to like find a switch for this thing. Uh, So first of all, one thing that I didn't realize is when you have these smart light bulbs, if you flick the hardware switch off, right, obviously the power to the smart light bulb goes out. Right. So it goes out. But then when you flip it back on, it knows, hey, I just got electricity. I should turn on. Which like, is kind of nice. Yeah, okay. So that seems... Like, like the, the light comes on. Like it acts like a light like you would expect. Yeah. The problem is when you turn it off from the app and then, and then you also – then you want to go turn it on and you go to flick the switch and unbeknownst to you, that actually has turned off the power to the thing. And then you have to flick it again to turn it back on. Hmm. So that's pretty horrible. That sounds pretty rough, yeah. Yeah, so you don't want that. So then I was like, okay, well, let me look around and find a smart switch that I can use. And it would be fine even if it plugged in, like, because obviously Wi-Fi takes a lot of power. You won't, you won't, this can't be battery powered. Right. So I like, I figured, okay, it'll be Wi-Fi. I'll just plug it into the wall and I'll get like a little outlet um, sort of extender thing for that one plug so we can have more plugs. And then I'll just plug in a button and then you'll hit the button and then everything will be good. Turns out this thing that I want does not exist. Hmm. You cannot just get a HomeKit button that just plugs into the wall. It just doesn't exist. Nobody makes it. That, that plugs in rather than being like hardwired? Right, right. That um, Yeah, that plugs in with like a two-prong outlet and it's just hmm. a button. does nothing else. It's just a button that sends HomeKit signals to something. Totally doesn't exist. There are some things that are Z-Wave or Zigbee, which are like this other networking protocol you are so far down the rabbit hole. <laughs> I am really far down the rabbit hole. Um, Z-Wave and Zigbee are like, they're like special low power signaling mm-hmm. network things that are still wireless, but, uh, and so they're, they're embedded for home automation because usually home automation stuff doesn't have any power. But yeah. If you attach a smart um, detector for if your doors open or close, you can't like 
plug that into the wall so you you can't connect to Wi-Fi from that. So you need something else. So mm-hmm. That's that stuff's right. Typically much lower frequencies than Wi-Fi, both because uh, that um, well, because that'll give you longer range and um, also takes less power. Yeah, yeah. Um, Chris is the scientist. He knows the reasons that things are actually the way they are. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that does, this button doesn't exist. I don't want to get a Zigbee hub because you have to get a hub then to connect it to your real Wi-Fi and everything else. So I was like, I don't want to get that. Uh, and I was like, all right, you know what? I will I'll change tracks entirely and I will go to the Philips Hue family of products. So, and this is what people have, when people heard our Wemo episode, they were like, just get some hues and a tap switch. And so I did. That's what I did. I got a tap switch I, and I got a hue starter kit, which is two white bulbs and one hub. Okay. okay? So I, I screw in the light bulbs. Uh, I plug in the hub and then the home kit setup was like actually pretty painful, but like I got it working. That sounds then, about right. Yeah. And then um, I got the like tap switch working which is like it's powered by every time you click it, it powers a little piezoelectric thing, and that charges it, which is cool. So you don't need to plug it in or, or use batteries or anything, which is pretty great. And then that has to connect to your hub, which is your, your Hue hub. So that all connects through that stuff. That's all working now, except for a couple of things. One, we had some guests here, and the whole – I don't know if you've ever seen a Philips tap switch. but it's, I don't it's, think I have. Yeah, so I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's basically a big circle, and then there's three smaller circles on it. And each of the smaller circles are very obviously buttons, but the whole thing is also a button. But, like, it's not obvious that the whole thing this is This sounds really it's, weird. It's really strange. This if you doesn't, Google t- uh, yeah, tap switch, you'll see it. Wait, the whole thing is also a button? Yeah. That's absurd. That's yeah. a terrible design. Why? Not good. Uh, just give me a button. I just, like, give me... Anyway, I'm not angry. Um, Are you, so, and then the three, the, so there's four buttons on there. You can see like one has one dot, one mm-hmm. has two dots, three dots, and four dots. So that represents the four buttons. Um, and then you can program them to different settings. So like if you click the whole thing in, it will set it to like on. If you click the second button, it'll set it to like dimmed. Third will be like a little brighter, but still dimmed. And then fourth is like fully on. So then like to turn it on and off, you have to like, push the four dot button, which is like the left most tiny button, but then to turn it off, you can push the whole thing. I was like, this is insane. Like, I'm not going to remember which button to push based on what no. the light is currently in. I just wanted to toggle the light. It turns out Wait, that then you none can of go, these buttons just toggle the lights? None of them do. They just set the light to a state. <laughs> oh, my it's stateless. God. It's stateless. It's stateless programming. It's functional. <sighs> so then it turns out that if you go to the Philips Hue website there's something called hue labs where people have programmed with javascript um different behaviors for the lights javascript is the last thing i went involved in making (laughs) lights come on in my apartment so what i did is i i set the big button to toggle and there is a toggle behavior which is amazing um and so you just push the big button it turns on you push the big button it turns off now one of the downsides here number one i haven't done this to buttons two three and four so if you accidentally think those are buttons, then you would push them and something totally different happens. Well, my suggestion, yeah, make, I, make, make each of the buttons do just do the exact same thing. Yeah, I need to. That's what I need to do. The other thing is that the toggle just toggles to the previously remembered state. So if you press button two and set it to dimmed, and then you press the big button, which toggles, it'll turn it off. And then you press the big button, which toggles again, and it goes back to the previously dimmed state. Hmm. 
Which is like, remember in the like early 2000s and the 90s when you would hit undo and it would undo something and you would hit undo again and it would just undo the undo. I think this redoing. is still how Photoshop works, yeah. I think it might be. I, it's yeah, In, in Photoshop, Photoshop, you want step backward, yeah. not undo. Yeah, there's like a whole history pane. Mm-hmm. This is what this button does. It's maddening. And... <laughs> But it works. And then I had, um, we had guests, they came and they were like, we don't understand which button to press. We tried pressing buttons and they didn't do anything. We should invite them on the podcast. That's right. <laughs> and so it turns out you just have to press the whole thing, but people don't realize the whole thing is a button. To everyone who told me to get a Hue tap switch and to just get Hue bulbs, also it's crazy expensive. The Hue tap switch itself is like 50 bucks, which already is more than a Wemo like in the wall switch. Mm-hmm. Um, like an outlet switch, and then I also had to get two bulbs and a hub, and that was like another seventy bucks or something. So like I'm like out 120 bucks for the just the bathroom. When if I was able to just plug like plug in one of these Wemo wall switches that I like, it would have been like 40 bucks. The way of the future, way of the future. So, in conclusion, Philips Hue family products not bad, but worse than Wemos somehow. After all that. Not bad. I mean, it works. I mean, I got lights and I can control them from my phone. I could say, you know, hey, dingling. Yeah. Turn off the lights in the bathroom and that works. Man, and here I've just been living by flipping switches in my walls. Like an animal. <laughs> like an animal with functioning lights with no JavaScript involved whatsoever. Yeah. Well, lucky you. Anyway, moral of the story Hugh, not working out that great but i can control my lights with my voice which is something so let's talk about object-oriented programming let's transition to actual programming uh chris you had a you had an article you wanted to discuss this week yeah i thought it might be fun this week to uh discuss inheritance and in object-oriented programming and uh the various problems with it and this is something which i don't even remember if we've touched on in previous episodes i assume that we probably have but I read this article a little a week or two ago titled Why Inheritance Never Made Any Sense. And the sort of key point that this article makes is that uh, they're really, you know, and what you think of as inheritance, like you inherit, um, you make a subclass of one class and uh, to, in order to like specialize it in some way, right? Um, is that there are three different kinds of inheritance going on. And this article actually goes uh, a little bit further than something that you know i've i've thought about inheritance for a while i don't remember where i learned this or who um who gave me this phrasing initially but that inheritance conflates implementation reuse with interface reuse right um it's useful you know sometimes you want to be able to reuse interfaces and we have things like protocols for that now sometimes Mm -hmm. you want to be able to reuse implementations and uh that is something that we've traditionally done with uh like with subclasses with inheritance and this post goes one step further and says um before you move on um so basically you're saying reusing interfaces uh that's like basically like liskov substitution you're saying anything that that has this type can go in here whether it's a subclass or whatever yeah and then implementation is all about deduplicating code those are two separate reasons that we would want a subclass right implementation reusing implementations is saying that like this thing uh takes you takes some properties and some methods from this other thing and reuses them right 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 so an example of this would be like ns array um having a bunch of subclasses the implementation reuse is the fact that you know the thing 
that uh, builds an NS enumerator from uh, the thing is, is reusable among all NS arrays, mm-hmm. but the fact that they're all the same type allows you to reuse them as interfaces in different places. Right. And I actually have quibbles with uh, with NS array and Coco's whole mutable subclass problem. I have a blog post about that, or mutable subclass pattern, excuse me, and I have a whole blog post about that, which we'll throw in the show notes. Uh, yeah. We're recording this a little bit late at night, and uh, I'm going to start falling asleep here, so keep <laughs> keep. keep Keep an eye on my uh, my phrasing here. Let me know when I say something wrong. So I will. This uh, this blog post, um, which is from uh, Graham Graham someone Graham Lee Graham Lee, goes one step further. In addition to thinking about like um, a interface inheritance or you know Liskov substitution principle and implementation reuse, the first thing that he actually calls out is ontological inheritance, which is like. I'm still trying mentally to really tease this apart from implement from uh, interface reuse, but he says that ontological inheritance is about specialization. This thing, like your subclass, is a specific variety of uh, of this other thing. So, example, like uh, a football or basketball is a kind is a specific variety of a sphere, uh, and it takes some properties from sphere, like having a radius, diameter, that kind of thing. Right. It should be noted here that Graham is British, and when he says football, he means what we would call soccer ball. We know Ah, that American footballs are not spherical. That makes a (laughs) lot of sense. It's late. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. This is something that I just thought was might be interesting to talk about um, because it's it's inheritance this tool that you know you learn to use fairly early on in in a programming education or programming career. um, If you're doing any sort of object oriented programming whatsoever, and the way that it's classically used in you know, Java and C++ and whatever else, um, uh, you know, whatever other languages, kind of comes with a lot of a lot of pitfalls. And it's kind of, um, you know, it's a hammer and you can use it to kind of solve the, several different problems, but none of them, um, it, you, you solve none of them like really well, or at least when you solve one of them, you come with like other, other problems or other uh, properties that you don't necessarily want. Right. And you can easily imagine... I have, let's say, an NS-ordered set, and I want it to gain some implementation from NSArray, and I want it to gain some implementation from NSSet, but not necessarily... Um, but, but I can't subclass from both, and I don't want everything from both. So you end up with a situation where... Um, and, and then you also maybe want it to be able to act as an NSArray and act as a set, interface-wise, mm-hmm. but again, you can't subclass twice you can only subclass once and so you end up with this thing where you have these four different implementations and interfaces that you want leaving aside the ontological inheritance because like you i don't quite understand how that's different than the other two i mean Um, i i kind of have an intuition about it which is like in addition to uh saying that a that uh a basketball like has the same like can be used anywhere that you require a sphere right yeah that 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 is right uh you're also saying that like a football's identity is like a specialization of of what a sphere is and i i do think that that's subtly different from um from interface reuse right you're kind of describing and saying like like this is like a like a an employee is a specific type of person Right, and that's useful for modeling your schema, you know, in some abstract sense. 
Yeah, um, I, I, I think that's right. But maybe for pur- purposes of this discussion, we can focus mostly on sort of thinking about implementation reuse versus interface reuse. Right. I think those are the kind of important ones. So what are some, uh, can, can we think of of places where like conflating these two things is bad and like brings some sort of uh, like brings problems with it? Yeah, I mean, every, everywhere, basically. <laughs> like, uh, so I think, I think the only times we've ever touched on um, subclassing and inheritance in this podcast is saying that we just don't really do it. We rely on, as Graham mentions later in the post, uh, composition and delegation mm-hmm. um, for sharing code. And then we rely on protocols and then also protocol uh, default implementations. Um, so, sorry, protocols for interface and then also protocol uh, default implementations for implementation sharing. Right. And that gets around your, um, you can't have two super classes problem. Cause you can, right. you can conform to as many protocols as you want. And those protocols can provide like multiple, uh, default implementations. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so like we kind of got around that by just never inheriting. Yeah. Although we've gotten around that, like in Swift, really, the, the Swifty way is kind of not to inherit. Like if you're programming in, in Objective-C, I think it's it's still much more common. Yeah. Well, I mean, Objective-C just doesn't really have the tools that... Um, that That's true. Yeah. I mean, those. you have protocols. So, okay. So yeah. maybe let's go over what the things that Swift has that are you that are unique that, that help you solve this problem. Uh, first of all, if you really do want to say that you know this this class is a specialization of some other class you can inherit you can subtype that also means though that you have to like ensure that that, that you don't violate any of the like api contract that that super class declares and that is really hard like my my complaint about the coco's mutable subclass pattern is that like one of the things that you can do with an nsra is you can iterate it and it's not always, in all cases, safe to do that with an NS mutable array, even though in theory you can use a mutable array anywhere you can use an array. Right. Right? Because that makes sense. You, if the array is being mutated somewhere else, you can't iterate it. And, that's and just, it will crash, I believe. And actually. it will crash. And that's just not a problem if um, you are using an immutable array. And so, like, my argument is that that actually does violate the Liskov substitution principle. Yeah. If you want to reuse, like, an interface without you know, without saying that this this type is a specialization of some other type, which I think this really is a pretty common use case, then Swift has protocols, and you can adhere something to protocol. Things that, uh, you know, your various APIs can deal entirely in protocols, don't have to deal with, like, classes at all. And then if you want, like, sharing implementations, as you know, you can use protocol extensions, which uh, pull in, you know, both interface and implementation, although you can still override that implementation should you need to. And right. and I forget what it does when in, when two implementations collide. I think it depends on the order that you've declared the, uh, the protocol conformance mm, in. I guess that's good. Uh, I maybe just want it not to compile if that's... Yeah, I would, I would double check my... Um, yeah. Okay, so having done some searching, I found a blog post that I wrote in 2015 about this uh about this topic, what happens when um you try to conform two protocols each of which provide an implementation for a method with the same name. Uh in the example that I tried, the compiler refused to compile the code. Uh, and I got a clarification later from Doug Greger that says if they are constrained protocol extensions, it uses a partial ordering based on the constraints otherwise error. I'm not 
totally sure exactly what uh, okay, if they're constrained protocol extensions. So uses. that would be like if it's you know a array where element is coordinate or whatever. Then it'll use. Uh, wait, what does it mean to like use a partial ordering based on the constraints? What are the so a partial order is is uh, in contrast contrast like a total order. So a mm-hmm. partial order would mean like um, probably like the more specific one wins, unless they're equally specific. In which case, throw your hands up. Who knows? That seems right. I'm just yeah. curious what um, like how how how, how they're ordering the constraints, right? But specificity would make sense. Yeah, specificity is the one, and I mean, I think like CSS works based on specificity, and like that's yeah, like not the CSS worst. is terrible. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> the I, I the least argument I've gotten from you on on uh, well, no, I guess we we haven't really had a good argument on here in a long time. Yeah, it's been a minute. Yeah. All right, so those are sort of um, some ways to think about like inheritance and what it what it says, what it doesn't say. Uh, and like different ways to achieve the same things in Swift. I think you wanted to dive a little bit into how uh, other languages have. Yeah, I mean, namely, I want to talk about Java. Okay. Um, because I think like there, there's there's object oriented programming as it was like originally expressed, and I, and I feel like the small talk argument. This. Yeah, the classic small talk argument, right? But I mean, I think that like java because it rose to such ascendancy that like for a while like it was made in what 1995 it is probably like up until 10 years ago it's probably the most widely used object-oriented language maybe with exception with c++ i'm not sure and it just had such a bad implementation of object-oriented programming that i think it sort of poisoned the well for everybody when it came to object-oriented programming. So you say like object-oriented programming, and there are people that really think like, oh, object-oriented programming is about inheritance. And I I think, you know, one of the arguments that this blog post by Graham is making is that it's not about inheritance. Inheritance is just one of the, it's just a tool for sort of um, handling these types of relationships that we want to express, the ontological inheritance, the interface um, substitution, and also the implementation sharing. And even though like, like this is a tool that we were given to use it because Java, because in Java, it was the only tool that you were given to use it. You end up screwing yourself effectively Mm -hmm. because you have no other way to describe anything other than single inheritance, which no matter what, no matter how good of a programmer you are, you're going to get trapped by it. You're Absolutely, just happen. it's not expressive enough to do like to write whatever to write most like complex software. How how exactly. long has Java had interfaces? A long time, I think. So that is one thing to keep. Like Java has had interfaces in addition to inheritance for quite a while. Right, and so what you end up seeing is you end up seeing every single type has an interface. And then, like, mm-hmm. it'll be like type, and that'll be the interface, and then type impl will be the implementation, which will be a concrete version of it. And everything is sort of um, uh, like built around that. And you end up having to do that because you don't know when you're going to need to be able to like conform another interface to something and when you won't. And then for code sharing, there's just you have no other choice other than um, you have no other choice other than subclassing. And so you just end up constantly subclassing after subclassing after subclassing. Uh, when you're in Java land and it's just, it's absolutely horrible. Oh, that is something you commonly see in like people, 
uh, making fun of Java code is a, like an abstract interface and abstract interface simple and concrete base. What yeah. um, they need a factory and they need a builder. Exactly. Oh, the builders. Don't forget the builder. forgot about the builders. But if you contrast that with something like Ruby, you know Ruby for all of its flaws um, will allow. It does give you those tools to share those implementations. So you have like I think there's something called Def Delegator. And def delegators. And what that does is it lets you assign a friend to handle a specific method for you. So you can delegate to one of your children um, when a method comes in. Okay. If that makes sense. So it, it basically like enables you to do like delegation really easily. Am I make that I just like scroll over the interesting stuff or should I go back and explain what def delegator is? Uh, yeah, maybe. Wait, I can't even find what, what am I, what am I Googling wrong here? Google Ruby forwardable or def def underscore delegators. Oh, module forwardable. I found it. Okay. Yeah. So the way that this works is, okay, so let's say that you are a, uh, you know, let's say you're an API error collection. Okay. You have an array of errors, right? Mm -hmm. And you want to be able to be iterable yourself. Okay. Right? Yeah. So, so you have an array, but uh, you're you're an object. You have an array as a child, but you also want to be iterable yourself. So, one way to do this is you can define your each method in Ruby, and that's what you know allows you to be iterable. And then you can manually call like errors dot each, and then pass the block and like do all the nonsense you need to do. Okay. And so that's one way to do it. But th- that that way you're like manually writing each method that you want to forward over to the your child. But with def delegators, you just write okay. def delegators and you tell it what child and then you tell it what methods you want to forward. Yeah. And it just handles the forwarding for you. That's nice. It's really nice. And so this is like an additional tool that you get that enables you to um that enables you to share implementations quickly and easily and and specifically also. Like you can share only specific messages or forward only specific messages down right. to your children. And that's specificity. Do the whole thing, yeah. And that specificity is going to be key to using this in any, uh, in a maintainable way. Absolutely. And then Ruby doesn't have any kind of um, interface sense at all. So everything's duct typed. So whatever messages something responds to, that's the type that it is. And so if it pretends, to, if it quacks like a duck, then I can treat it like a duck. And so you don't even need mm-hmm. to worry about the um, interface uh, sharing, essentially. Right. Uh, when you're when you're dealing with Ruby. So there there are other ways, other tools that you could have to solve this problem. And then like this, you know, module forwarding, this def delegator thing in Ruby, in Objective C you have um what is it? It's like it's in the runtime. Yeah, Objective C has like uh machinery for message forwarding like this. Yeah, it's um, like forwarding target for selector. Yeah, that's it. Forwarding Boy, it's been a while. I, I was thinking about this while you were talking in about Ruby and um yeah, it's been a long time since I've written any code that uses this. <laughs> it works. It actually works really great. And if you have a protocol, it works yeah. even better because protocols, remember, in Objective-C were all optional. Mm-hmm. So you could, well, sort of, but you could make it work to where you conform to a protocol and forward all your children, all these messages over to um, to a child of yours. Yeah. And, um, and that was like another tool that you had to like share implementations uh, that Ruby just didn't give you. Ruby doesn't give you extensions, which I think are crucial for object-oriented programming. Mm-hmm. Ruby doesn't give you... Um, you could argue that multiple inheritance is another approach, which I think C++ lets you do multiple inheritance, right? C++ does come with multiple inheritance. Uh, yeah. But I, I think it's that has mostly been eschewed by you know most most modern languages because 
just because right? the yeah just because the, the complexity that can come with it and um the classic what is it the um the, the diamond problem yeah uh yeah. which is you have one super class two subclasses and then one sub subclass that inherits from both of the right uh and both so, of the both of its superclasses right and so, so both like, how of does those, it know which path to go through for like the super calling super especially if both of the those like intermediate subclasses specialize the same method in some different way right yeah exactly um, exactly and we talked a little bit about how like swift resolves this with the uh, protocol extensions yeah yeah and i think swift actually gives you a lot of really nice tools um, yeah, for handling this stuff so i think basically for everything for your is a relationship which i think is um, Graham's sort of ontological inheritance. For ISA, you can use protocols. For your interface sharing, you can use protocols. And then for your impl- implementation sharing, you can use protocols as well. Kind of works really nicely when you think about it. Yeah. The only thing it doesn't, that, the only thing Swift doesn't have is true dynamic dispatch. And I will die on this horse. Swift needs to have dynamic dispatch. Die on this, Especially for uh, this, on this case. horse or on this hill? I could die on a horse on a hill, you know? Maybe I'm sitting on a horse and the horse is sitting on a hill. Why not both? Why not both? That's that's a spirit. That's right. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's that one specific problem where um, it's like you have a protocol and then a class that conforms to the protocol, and depending on what static type you have for that, that determines what is what version of the implementation is going to be called. There's a really good blog post for this. Ah, here it is. Okay, cool. I found it. It's called The Ghost of Swift Bugs Future. Everybody's read this post. It's so good. Um, and this guy, uh, Alejandro, I think, yeah, Alejandro Salazar, lays out this problem really nicely. And you have a protocol, a type that conforms to the protocol, um, and both the type and the protocol provide an implementation. And the implementation that you get depends on what the thing is casted as. Okay. And that's really confusing. Yeah, although th- I remember this being a huge topic of discussion early in in the early days of Swift. Has that has this come up to bite you? I think I've asked you yes, this before. I'm has. having a flashback to a previous discussion about this. I'm sh- I'm sure that we've talked about this. Um it has definitely come up to bite me and um it confuses people all the time. Um, dynamic dispatch is the right approach here. And, um, uh, oh, it wasn't Joe Graf, It was Paul Cantrell who linked to it on Twitter like yesterday. Uh, and then he wrote, there's been discussion on Swift Revolution going around in circles for years about how to make the compiler better help devs understand and catch mistakes. And so like people know that this is a problem, but it's just i don't know it just well i was so i was just gonna say i i mean i haven't really as you know how i haven't really been following swift evolution has there been any like movement or any new discussion on this or is it just kind of a known uh a, a known area of complexity um i have not seen any movement on it and i think some people think that this is the correct behavior yeah that's the frustrating part i mean in some ways it probably is the I haven't I haven't thought about this in a long time, so I'm hesitant to go too far down the road talking about it because uh, I don't have anything intelligent or insightful to say, and I'll probably get something wrong. Ah, uh, okay. I did find what I was looking for. Uh, um, Slava on Twitter says, "I think the current behavior definitely counts as a bug, but it's a fair bit of work to fix." Hmm. 
the bug is that the subclass should be able to override a protocol requirement witnessed by a default implementation in a conformance on the base class. I mean, I know what some of those words mean. So I, I would say he's flavels on the case. Makes sense. Can you put that in the show notes, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, let me grab this for you. Um, he, he says if you conform to this, like it should essentially copy that implementation into the um, right. copy the, the body of the implementation into the class. And I mean, I think that's right. I think that is right. I think this does have, I could see this having some relatively complex uh, runtime implications. Yeah, but. Although, I mean, uh, I'm not a Swift runtime person. Was, what do I know? Everything was message sent and it was fine. Well, yeah, but, well, was it fine? I thought so. <laughs> uh, I think that for some of the use cases that they have in mind for Swift, it isn't fine. That's true. That's true. Um, and later in the thread, Slava writes, the language is so complex, we'll never get a complete implementation or even reach consensus on what it means to be complete. Whoa. That is deep. Good place to end of the episode? I guess so. I don't know that I have anything anything more that's useful to add. Uh, well, actually, I take it back. I have two things that I want to add. Um, my the thought for this episode just came out of a discussion with uh, with a listener a couple weeks ago via email, uh, who had asked, you know, what's the difference between um, inheritance and traits and multiple inheritance and protocol extensions and our protocol extensions and multiple inheritance. And I think that we've mostly answered this question. I'll just add that protocol extensions are not multiple inheritance because they don't uh, establish that sort of, um, well, the like ontological hierarchy, right? Um, the sort of like spe- specialization of uh, of types. Um, they come along with some like uh, Liskov substitution principle. Um, like if you want to use something that conforms to a protocol, then by all means use something that conforms to this protocol and gets its implementation from a protocol extension. But it doesn't bring along this like ontological inheritance that we talked about, the specialization of of uh, of identity almost that we talked about. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. And uh, I would just wrap up by saying, you know, for for some of you, this probably was all nothing new, uh, and that's great. Uh, for others, like the next time you reach to to create a subclass to inherit from something, think about what you're trying to do. Are you trying to um, are you trying to reuse part of this interface? Is a protocol a better choice? Uh, are you trying to reuse an part an implementation or just part of an implementation? Is a protocol with with an extension? the correct choice are you really trying to uh to like specialize this type and in that case maybe inheritance is the right choice yeah very reasonable Uh, that seems like a good overview of everything we talked about as always chris it was super fun and as always patreons you're the best yeah as always thank you so much for your support we really appreciate it our editor joe uh really appreciates it and uh we'll talk to you next week later chris bye sirish